This episode is brought to you by AudioQuest, makers of the mythical series Analog Interconnects. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darker Audio Podcast. Joining me for a second run at this is Peter Como from IAG, who is the Director of Acoustic Design. Did I get it right, Peter? You did. Well done, John. So, Peter, welcome again. Thanks for coming back, because at the end of the last time we spoke, which was essentially about Mission 700 and 770, you said to me you'd love to do a part two where we could talk about why bigger speakers are generally almost always better than smaller speakers. And I thought, what a great topic. So that's what we're going to tackle today. Um, and I think we're also going to talk a little bit about the the new Wharfdale Dovedale because it's a big speaker. But that's the third in the lineup of Heritage Series Wharfdales. Is that right, Peter? That's right, yeah. We started the Wharfdale Denton in 1980, uh, and then the Linton came about, I think, about 1986, something like that. Mm. Um, and now we're doing Dovedale. Right. But these are rebirthed versions, aren't they? They're not the originals from, from the 80s and 70s. No, we're, we're not. I mean, D Denton, <laughs> was the, Denton was the interesting one to start with because um, we wanted to do something special for the 80th anniversary. And I said, mm. why Why don't we you know, look back at one of the best-selling models in Wharfdale's history and mm. bring it completely up to date? So, yeah, it has the same rough appearance um, that was designed way back in the mid-'60s by Robert Gutman, which was mm. an extremely elegant cabinet. And uh, we thought, yeah, I think people would still like that in their homes today. And it, it's, it's proved itself. And then, of course, when we followed up with Linton, I mean, that has just been an amazing success. It's probably Wharfdale's um, biggest selling product. Um, but I have noticed that other people sort of came out the woodwork um, after we did Linton and came mm -hmm. up with their own versions of classics. And in many cases, they've been sort of exact copies. And I don't really understand why you would want to do that because – Speaker designs moved on. Our recording techniques have moved on, and mm. um, you know, gen generally, you need to do a lot to a speaker nowadays to make it stand up to modern um, recordings and sources. Right, and we did talk about this with the missions last time. Um, in terms of, maybe I think it was modern music has far more base information than say thirty or forty or fifty years ago. And you have to design the speaker accordingly for modern requirements and not for the requirements back then. But I bet some manufacturers are probably damned if they do and damned if they don't. Like if they make too many radical changes, the, the diehard customers who remember the original get all grumbly. And then if, if they don't you know, make the modern changes that you've done, maybe new customers who don't remember the original would be put off by that because they'd be like, well, it's just a, an old speaker with old technology. So it's, I guess it's a fine line you have to walk, isn't it? Well, it is. And uh, I mean, I expected lots of flack when we did the Mission 770 because it was such an iconic speaker of its time. Mm. And uh, of course, we got, the, we got what I expected 
in terms of price. People mm. were coming and saying, oh, I bought mine for £500. Why are you charging $3,000 a pair? And to which my answer is, put that £500 in the Bank of England uh, calculator for what it's worth today. You'll find it's worth mm. £2,500 now. And right. You know, it's this is what people forget that five hundred pounds in in nineteen seventy seven was an awful lot of money, um, mm. and the amount that we spend on hi fi today is, I think, generally ridiculously small. You know, you can you can go and buy a pair of of speakers that I've designed uh, mm. for two hundred and forty nine pounds a pair. Well, back when I started designing speakers in 1979, uh, the first speakers that I brought out were, were you know, 200 pounds a pair. So, why why do we suddenly think that hi-fi has to be cheap? Mm, it's a good. I mean, it's a good point. But I, I mean, so you're saying that you, I mean, I'll pull on this thread because it's interesting. So, you think that hi-fi now at one end of the market, the, the, I guess the more affordable end of the market, is more affordable than it's ever been. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, if 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 people had been able... When I, when I go back and look at old adverts of the, of the 60s and the 70s and mm. see what you could buy back then for the equivalent of, let's say, £100 today, mm. um, it, was, it was awful stuff. I mean, right. really terrible, <laughs> terrible equipment. Right. Um, I know because I used to sell it. I worked in Tottenham Court Road in London and we get somebody who come in and said, you know, I want to buy a record player for 19 guineas. And you'd sell them something that was utterly atrocious. I mean, I'd always try, mm. obviously, I'd always try to sell them up. But, you know, if somebody's got in their mind, they want to buy something for 19 guineas, then uh, it's very difficult to uh, to change their mind. But yeah, what what we have now for an extremely affordable price is incredible sound quality. Mm. I mean, how the 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 Lintons because I'm getting a pair of Lintons soon as soon as a, a, another set of Walnut arrive in Germany, and I think there's something like eleven hundred euros a pair. But what I love about those is is that they come with the stands, and not only that, but with the stands can accommodate vinyl records, which I thought was a stroke of genius. I thought that was brilliant. Oh. Thank you. That's very nice. Of you to <laughs> I know, really, because it's 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 so. I mean, I guess I love things that are so strikingly obvious, and maybe it was done back in the sixties and seventies, and I missed it because I wasn't really there. Um, I mean, was it Peter, or is it just something you no. thought of one day and was just like? No, it's 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 actually happenstance. In the sixties and seventies, <clears throat> um, well, certainly in the sixties, people put speakers on floors. There wasn't such mm. a thing as a speaker stand. Didn't exist. Mm. If you had floor standing, if you sorry, if you had a big speaker like the Linton, you put it on the floor. If you had mm. a small speaker like the Denton, you put it in a magazine rack on a shelf on some, you know, whatever. Huh. But there, were, there were no speaker stands. Um, but then we found out in the late seventies, um, mid to late seventies, that speaker stands were a good thing because they raised the speaker off the floor and and uh, got you further away from the the first speaker reflection off the floor. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the the speaker stands really came in um, around then for something like the Spender BC One. I think was the first that I ever 
never saw a speaker on the speaker stand. Uh, and, And for the Linton... Obviously, the speaker stand is meant to raise it to the right height off the floor yes, for yes. a seated listener. Um, and it just so happened that when we did the speaker stand, we thought, hmm, ah, this is good. We can get a 12-inch LP in there. Mm. So, yeah, <laughs> that's how it happened. Well, I just, yeah, I, just, I guess I've I've always known speaker stands to exist in my world. And I've never really I, – I, I guess I take it as a given nowadays that people use them to get the speaker or the tweeter roughly at ear height. So I, I generally come at this thinking that's assumed knowledge, and maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't assume that because some people might not know the importance of a stand. Um, well, there but, are there yeah. are other aspects to speaker stands as well, which we could do. We, hey, we could do another podcast just on speaker stands. Anyway. Well, okay, let's park that idea and let's talk <laughs> about speaker stands another time because we don't want to uh, crowd this one out. Can we yeah. talk about some of the reasons why well, we, so in the Wharfdale Heritage Series, you've got the Denton. It's a small-ish kind of bookshelf. You've got the Linton, which is a, I guess you call it, well, by, by modern standards, I would say that's kind of a large bookshelf, but possibly, let's just go for this, for the sake of argument, we'll call it midsize. And then the new Dovedale is definitely, definitely a large stand mount or bookshelf, but it has its own stand, but it's pretty low, isn't it? Because it's quite, it's got its own height. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and I mean, talking about size, uh, and this is what we're here to talk about, by the way, mm. is, is that yes. when I started building loudspeakers uh, in, the, in the 60s for my own home use, because then you could buy drive units and put them in your own cabinets, an eight-inch drive unit was a mid-range unit. You, mm. you know, but nobody nobody in their right mind would buy an eight inch unit for a base unit it was unheard of too small so you, yeah far too small okay uh, you were looking at 10 12 or 15 inches for for okay. a reasonable base performance um so speakers were big and you knew that if you wanted a decent sound you had a, a speaker big speaker um, mm. It was just the done thing. And speakers were items of furniture that you put in your home. Mm-hmm. Um, hence the Robert Goodman designs for the uh, for Wharfdale in, in the mid-60s that you know, it was turning what was a, a, a fairly big piece of furniture into something that looked stylish. Mm. And um, it, it, that's what people accommodated in their homes for good sound. So calling Linton midsize, I mean, it would have been considered a, a bookshelf speaker in its day. And in fact, right. in fact was. If you, if you look at the old adverts for the Wharfdale Linton, it was always perched on a shelf in the fashion then was for G-Plan furniture. Right. Um, so My parents had G-Plan, I remember that. Yeah. Remember that yeah. well. And that's come back again. That's another retro design which has come back. Ten years ago, cheap land furniture was being chopped up and used for firewood. Now it's, right. it's now it costs an arm and a leg, if you see any on the second-hand market. So, uh, yeah, we digress. But, yes, so why, have, you know, why over the years did we go for smaller and smaller speakers? I was about um, to ask the same, yeah. And it was because... Uh, to a certain extent, the march of technology. So, mm. the back if we go back again to the mid sixties, nearly all loudspeakers were closed boxes. So you needed a 
high volume, if you're going to extend the bass response down, uh, if you wanted to hear the lowest notes of a pipe organ, if you want to hear the lowest note of a bass guitar, you needed a speaker with a cabinet with a fairly large enclosure. Um, and it, sitting on the floor helped because it mm. it's another boundary, so it boosts the bass response. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, you know, a speaker with a 12-inch bass unit in a large cabinet will do what you wanted to do, and those were the speakers that I was I was building back then. Uh-huh. Uh, then, as we got into understanding what bass reflex did, and some Australian engineers called Teal and Small in uh, worked out the equations for designing a bass reflex box and what the drive unit had to do in order to work in a bass reflex box, suddenly we found that, yeah, we could use 8-inch bass units in smaller boxes. And, of course, uh, okay. that you know that suited the home user who didn't want these big boxes but wanted to hear low bass. Hmm. Um, and then, because that became very popular, then, okay, can we do the same thing with a 6.5-inch unit? Yes, we can. So got smaller and then the technology took over and suddenly we find that when i got to mission in 1999 we were making ultra small ultra sim loudspeakers where i was using if i was lucky i was using a five and a quarter inch base unit if i was unlucky i was using a four inch base unit Mm -hmm. Uh, and people were expecting to hear the bottom note of a bass guitar out of a cabinet which was, you know, not much bigger than the size of a hardback book. Mm. Um, but the trouble for the speaker designer is that you're trying to squeeze, and I think somebody put it this way in the Hi-Fi News magazine um, in the in the 70s, you're trying to squeeze a gallon out of a pint pot and mm. it just doesn't work. Now, why are the reasons it doesn't work? Well, for a start, the obvious one is that as you go down in drive unit size, you've got to displace the same amount of air. So if you've got, say, a 15-inch base unit, which is moving by one millimeter, um, I haven't done the maths on this, so it's straight off the top of my head. But if you go down to a if you go down to a four inch base unit, you know it's the inverse square law. So suddenly mm. that drive unit is having to move ten millimeters instead of one oh, millimeter wow. um, to okay. produce the to produce the same sound pressure level at the at the low frequencies. Uh, and even if, even though we've got the added efficiency of a bass reflex box, you're still talking about that amount of movement and that is i mean most base units really are reaching the end of their suspension travel with with a 10 millimeter movement um, mm. and that means that your distortion's going up because as right. a base unit reach reaches the end end of its um, allowed amount of travel the 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 suspension parts which are holding the cone um, and trying to control it are are having exercising their own mechanical influence in trying to stop the base unit going too far. So they're actually slowing the diaphragm down as it reaches its extent. And so we have dynamic distortions as well as harmonic distortions creeping in. 
the worst thing about going small is not just the drive unit size, because uh, I mean, plenty of people have said that, that if, for instance, you've got three six and a half inch drivers in a floor standing speaker, that's the equivalent of a 12 inch drive unit mm. in square radiating, it's radiating area. Uh, it's mm. about right, but it ignores one thing, and that is something that we engineers call the baffle step. Mm. Now, I'm going to get a bit technical here. No, please and I do. Hope I hope I don't lose everybody, but I'll try and explain it as in in layman's terms of, as best I can. Mm. If you imagine that the front of the speaker is radiating the sound from your small drive unit so let's mm. say let's talk about a mid-range unit and a treble unit on a on a, a a speaker cabinet which is much larger than them okay mm. so let's say we've got a, a a one inch treble unit and our speaker is nine inches wide then all the sound from that treble unit is going to be reflected off the front face of the speaker mm -hmm. so the speaker is actually radiating only forwards. It's not radiating backwards. So you're you're getting the sound of that of that treble unit. You're getting the power of that treble unit radiated mm. to you, the listener, rather than trying to fill the room with sound and mm -hmm. spreading around behind the speaker. That's all well and good. The problem comes when we talk about base units, because we might have a nine inch wide cabinet, but in that we're going to put an eight inch wide base unit. Mm. Now, the base unit is going to also radiate sound at mid-range frequencies from that front baffle, because the wavelength of sound is still small enough that it's not going to bleed around the edges of the cabinet. Mm -hmm. But at a point as we go down in frequency, the sound starts starts bleeding around the outside of the speaker and that mm -hmm. happens when the half when the width of the half the wavelength of sound is equivalent mm -hmm. to the baffle width of the speaker gotcha. so if we take if we take our you know 9 inch wide speaker this actually occurs at quite a high frequency um, occurs around sort of 6 to 700 hertz it's not an abrupt thing it's a gradual thing but what we find is, say, between um, 400 to 750 hertz, we've got a gradual loss of power because now at that lower frequency, the base unit is not seeing the front of the speaker at all. It's radiating around the sides of the speaker and trying to fill the room behind the speaker with power. Gotcha. And that means we lose 6 dB of output. Now, that's a lot. Mm. Now, in power terms, 6 dB is huge. And mm. it's very obvious when you listen to a small speaker uh, that doesn't have some sort of compensation put in place um, to solve this 6 dB power step, um, that it sounds thin and tinny. And mm. that's because you're hearing this big disparity between the mid-range level, you know, areas in the in the 800 to uh, 800 hertz upwards, um, which is coming out at full power reflected by the front of the speaker, and then you've got the 6 dB loss down to the lower mid-range and the bass frequencies. Right. Uh, so what we have to do as speaker designers is we actually have to shelve down that that mid-range and treble to match our loss of power in the bass. Mm. 
So we lose that 6 dB of output. And that meant that as speakers got smaller, the sensitivity of speakers got a lot less. So gotcha. whereas yeah. in the in the 60s and 70s, we were designing speakers which had 90 dB or 92 or 95 dBs of sensitivity. When we got down to smaller speakers in the 80s and 90s, um, we were dealing with, say, 86, 87 dB for the equivalent of one watt input. And then when I became involved at Mission uh, in the 2000s, we were having speakers which were 84 dB sensitivity mm. for one watt. Um, now, okay, we can push up the amplifier power to compensate, but you've still got that baffle step problem where you've got a loss of of base. And it's to my ears, we we sort of lost something because mm. I'd grown up with big speakers and I wasn't hearing the same quality of sound um, that we were we were designing out of small speakers it was almost like we were doing a con trick you know john it was almost mm. like we were sort of saying yeah this speaker goes down to 30 hertz but actually it doesn't sound as though it does we're not mm. when somebody's playing a double bass when somebody's playing a bass synthesizer where somebody's hitting a kick drum I'm not feeling it. I'm not getting hit in the chest by it. Mm. Um, so I sort of started looking at this and you know, realized that we had this dual problem of displacement from small drivers and mm. the baffle step problem, which was it's almost like having another crossover um, in the middle of the base unit's range. Can I ask a question uh, here? Because that was about yeah. you just mentioned the crossover. So, do you do the baffle step compensation in the crossover network? Yeah, it's part of the base crossover. Right. You'll okay. In, gotcha. In all, you'll see it in all base crossovers um, in the smaller speakers that you've got a big coil in there, which doesn't mm. just doesn't just uh, achieve the crossover you want, which may be you know in a two way speaker, maybe at three kilohertz. Um, mm. That big coil is actually to try and compensate for the the baffle step. So you're throwing away energy, or you're having you're the crossover it, yeah. absorb it and then dispense with it quietly, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Right. So when I started looking into this, and of course we all lose loudspeakers, use loudspeakers in rooms, and mm. started experimenting again with bigger loudspeakers. Uh, the one thing that I realized is, of course, even in a large loudspeaker, you've still got a baffle step. It doesn't go away. But mm. now it's down in the three to 400 hertz region. Mm. And that's when what well, uh, this other lovely thing about rooms comes in, and that is called room gain. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. below 400 hertz, your room boundaries, your walls, your the wall behind the speaker, the floor under the speaker – and to a certain extent, the ceiling, although it's a bit far away. But all these are starting to combine to, if you like, be part of the baffle of the loudspeaker. So you're getting reflection of the output of the, of the speaker, uh, which is increasing the lower frequency that you go. But it right, starts but at about the four. It starts at about the four hundred hertz region. So if we design a speaker which is big enough that its baffle step is is uh, uh, falling away 
below 400 hertz, we can mm. make up for it because the room is boosting the output below 400 hertz. Gotcha. And the two happen to, if you design the right speaker stand to raise the speaker of the right height off the floor, the two can actually begin to compensate for one another. And you mm. don't need, you don't have that power loss. Mm. And it also means that your speaker is actually what we call driving the room. It's it's producing uh, pressure levels in room, which are very akin to what you would hear if you actually bought those brought those instruments into the room. So, you know, if you bring your kick drum into the room, if you bring your bass guitar into the room or double bass into the room, you know, they're doing the same thing. They're using the room acoustics to generate that pressure, that kick you feel in your chest, in your stomach. Hmm. And that's the great thing about big loudspeakers is that they are emulating um, what a real instrument would do. And the other thing that made me think about this, and this only occurred the other day, is that somebody went on to the Wharfdale Facebook group and said, why is it when I listen to albums that I used to really like in the 70s and 80s, that they don't sound as good as they used to. And I started thinking about that because I've I've had the same feeling. Mm. And I, you have to think about what those uh, albums were being monitored on. They were being monitored in studio on big loudspeakers, you know, mm. big, big, even, even near field monitors would be something like Tannoy's. And nowadays, when people are monitoring, yes, they still monitor on big loudspeakers, but they also double check on Yamaha NS10s or Aura Tones, you know, fairly small speakers, to make sure that they're going to sound good uh, on people's, you know, Amazon smart speakers or whatever. Uh, And so they make the necessary adjustments to do that. Um, But could it? also be that you know we're not the same people that we were 30 years ago and our minds aren't as i guess impressionable malleable and i guess i mean music doesn't hit me as hard as it did when i was 15 it just doesn't because i was just a very different person back then and i think in the informative years you really do soak up all this stuff right and you you really you live for it and i think uh, there's a, I won't say it's nostalgia, but there's a, there's a change in one's psychological makeup as you get older. Well, there is, but if, but even so, I remember, for instance, listening to you know Steely Dan can't buy a thrill, Dark Side mm. of the Moon. Um, they they all had phenomenal uh, bass performance, and you listen mm. to those on small speakers, and they don't have phenomenal bass performance any bass performance anymore. But when when I did Dovedale, it all mm. came back again. <laughs> <laughs> so can can we just talk about how this this baffle step relates to Denton, Linton, and Dovedale? So what's what's the situation? Let's start with the the uh, the, the the smallest with the the Denton. What's the baffle step situation there? Um, well, it's it's still quite high. It's I mean it's not as high as you know the thinnest, smallest speakers that, that sure that. Mm. that became fashionable um, in the the early part of the millennium but mm. thankfully now are beginning to uh, to die out 
so it's a fairly large speaker in those terms. Um, but you're still in the five to 600 region. Okay. Um, so I would say it's still audibly obvious. Okay, and then uh, if but, we move up to the Linton, where, where do we where do we? Well, you sit there? move up to the Linton, you're four to five hundred hertz, so you're getting closer ah. to to the area where room gains coming in, and actually there's there's really very little baffle step compensation in Linton. See, I mean, I find this fascinating for a couple of reasons because I do find, I mean, right now I have a pair of Klipsch Forte Four in my lounge room, and even mm-hmm. though they do cause me some, they do excite the room modes. So there's a couple of modes I've got here that I have to sort of compensate for with DSP, but at, at low levels, they sound fantastic. And I tend to find that the larger the speaker, the more satisfying they are at, at low volume levels. And I guess with that comes a certain degree of effortlessness that you, I don't hear from a smaller two-way bookshelf because it, yes, it, it talking, always sounds like an engine revving hard, you know? So, Yeah. Yes, you're talking about really then about the dynamics of the speaker, what I referred Mm -hmm. to earlier, that the less a cone has to move, the more dynamic it can be, the more the more it's Ah. the more linear it is. Mm. So even even whether you're playing at low levels or high levels, you will hear that linearity um, Mm. as as sounding natural. So what about with, say, before we get to DevDow, what about with, say, the Mission 770? Where's the baffle step on that? Um, that'll be this, about the same as Linton. It's in the four to 500 right. area. Yeah. So you really have to go to uh, like a like a dovetail-sized speaker, a big, what I call a big speaker. I mean, you'll forgive me for saying this because I grew up in the age of, you know, the, the tiny speakers of the 90s and the, and the 2000s. Um, but the, the dovetail you get proper room gain from that because your baffle step is down at what, 400, 300, something like that? Yeah, three to 400. Uh, the, if you, I mean, if you look at the sales of Wharfdale models back in the, in the 70s, um, when the, the revised versions of Linton and Dovedale came out after Rank mm. Audiovisual took over Wharfdale and they put more work into research and development, the, mm. the, the Linton was, a really good sounding uh, shelf speaker and mm. the dovedale was a really really good standing selling floor speaker so mm. people obviously appreciated what the dovedale could do compared to the mm-hmm. linton um, and <clears throat> you know the, the to a certain extent the linton surprised us when we put it on the market because when i showed it to my sales guys they went we can't sell this it's way too big and as I say, it's <laughs> gone on to be it's gone on to be one of Wharfdale's biggest sellers, just just like mm. the original Linton did. Uh, and there's, I think, people have reacted to what I've reacted to, and that is, you can play any music on them. You can go back and play '60s music on them and still enjoy it mm-hmm. the way that you used to. Um, it's it's I I find it you know. Uh, a fascinating subject to watch how um, people buy with their ears and mm. understand not they don't understand necessarily the technicalities that we're talking about but they know what they're listening to mm-hmm. so i'm going to hit you with a what about question now <laughs> what about 
What about the notion that you need a big room, acoustically speaking, to accommodate a larger loudspeaker? Uh, no, I mean, it's Linton. I've seen Linton fit into quite small rooms. Yeah, if isn't social media wonderful? You can see exactly what, I, as a designer, I can see exactly what people are doing with their speakers. It's great. Uh, it's it's surprising what what how Linton will fit in, mm. because a lot of a lot of what it's doing, like you say, it's effortless. Mm. So you're not having to crank the volume up to get That's that true. impact. Yes. You're not, you're not having to displace the diaphragm by a huge amount and, and really, you know, put a hundred or 200 watts into a speaker to try and get that, that feeling that it's hitting you in the chest. In sense, instead, the speaker and, and the amplifier, and thank goodness for that, is cruising along mm. and it can really encompass all the dynamics. So you'll find that you don't have to play things as loud because you're getting that realism. At, at lower mm. levels, uh, and the amplifier as well as the speaker is acting in a more linear fashion because you're not pushing it to its limits. Sure, but I aren't you? If you do crank a larger speaker with a large driver that goes lower in the bass and can pack more of a punch in that low end, are you not more likely to excite a room mode when you turn um, the volume up than a, than a smaller speaker? Mm. Extension is extension. If you've got a bass mm. reflex speaker, which is going down to 40 hertz, and you've got a, um, a Linton, which is going down to, to 40 hertz, it's still doing the mm. same thing. Right. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I was speaking to your PR guy in the UK, and because I'm, I'm splitting my time now between Germany and Portugal, I, I'm getting a pair of Linton here. I'm actually buying them because I want to keep them for a year. I want to use them for a year maybe longer, who knows. Um, but when it comes to Dove Dale, I said, look, can you wait until I'm back in Portugal because I've got a bigger listening room there with actually mm. a, a larger acoustic area because it's very open at either end. So in my, in my mind, Peter, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, I thought, okay, well, Dovedale is going to be a much better acoustic fit for this larger room that I have in Portugal than, than I do here in Berlin, which is well, it's, I think it's six by five here in Berlin and in Portugal, it's seven by four. But I, like I say, there's these corridors that come off at either end. So it, it's acoustically, it's larger. Well, certainly Dovedale can, uh, can produce incredible sound in huge rooms. I mean, I've done mm. demonstrations in rooms holding 100 people and mm. it's easy. You know, because of its sensitivity and the the amount of sound pressure level it generates at low frequencies, it's a really easy easy to fill a room with sound. So mm. you'll have that benefit. Doesn't mean though that you can't use them in smaller rooms. Right. It's, it's, I, I guess. I mean, obviously, as yeah. pieces of furniture, they're going to dominate a smaller yes. room. So yes. you know, it does get yeah. ridiculous. Um, uh, and I, I guess that's why people would only buy something now that's dovetail size to put in put in large rooms. But back in the back in the day, when I when I when I built, you know, I, I actually let's come on to dovetail because it, it's an interesting story. Um, mm. I I became I, I went to university in Plymouth, and because I was living at home, because uh, my parents were living down there as well, um, mm. 
I, I was able to use uh, some of my student grant to go and buy a hi-fi system. <laughs> and uh, being an impecunious student, I thought, well, I'll build my own speakers. I mean, I built, I'd built speakers before, but I hadn't mm. built what I would call a proper hi-fi speaker before. Mm. Um, so I actually researched and decided to build the, at that time, the Dovedale 3 was available as a kit of drive units and crossover, and you just built your own cabinet. I would love to know more about that because the the era of sort of home speaker building from kits was spoken about quite a lot when I lived in Australia because to bring in a, like a fully pre-built speaker was extremely expensive because of the, the freight cost. So a lot of Australians in the 60s and 70s, and probably in the UK, but I think more in Australia proportionally, were building their own loudspeakers at home. And I find this fascinating. Like, it, was it, is it hard to do? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's hard to, it's hard to build a speaker cabinet that's, mm. uh, that looks good. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you could, you could buy pre-veneered board and, um, do some, but I mean, you need all sorts of really nice tools, don't you? You need to, yeah, need to have yeah. a, a really good panel saw. Um, do some, do some very nice joints. Try and get the thing mm. square. No, it's. I mean, it's, it's not something that's that's easy to do. But I think there was that people had. I don't know. Did people have more time on their hands back then? I think possibly. I yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, nowadays we're all rushed, and uh, we're, we live in a world where, you know, we want it now. Um, yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I'm certainly guilty things, of that. Things have changed. Yeah, but when you yeah. sold the kits and like the Dovedale three kits, were you just you weren't selling the cabinet as part of that kit, were you? No, no, you got the plans for right. the rough plans for a cabinet. Uh -huh. uh, and the uh, Wolfdale's recommendations, because it was a close box speaker, so Wolfdale's mm. recommendations were 66 litres for the smallest and 90 litres for the biggest. So mm. I thought, damn it, I'm going to build the biggest. Uh, and I'm glad <laughs> okay. I did. I'm glad I did because, you know, we got we got tremendous, tremendous bass performance out of it. Mm. Um, so I built those and then, you know, People used to, my friends used to come around and go, wow, this is a muddy sound amazing, you know. Mm. Um, I've, I've still got a friend now who still harks on about how he was really introduced to hi-fi by coming and hearing my system. So, you know, after we'd done Linton, I really begged the the powers that be at IG, the marketing guys, I said, I, I really want to do Dovedale because it's in my bloodstream still. I still remember <laughs> the effect right. that that speaker had not on me, but had on everybody who came to listen to them. And I want to mm. have that effect on people again. And they said, okay, well, you proved us wrong with the Linton, now prove us wrong with the Dovedale. So Dovedale oh, is, okay. is, is very much a, a work of absolute love and devotion for me. In the same way the Mission 770 was, but for different reasons, because this is a speaker that I actually built um, in, in 1969. And, mm. um, uh, and I wanted to get that feeling back. Uh, and we demonstrated it at the Bristol show. This was its first launch at the Bristol show in the UK mm. in February this year. Yeah. And yeah. we had people who were literally, uh, this, this is no exaggeration, they were coming in, they were sitting down, they were staying for hours 
Mm. I had one couple who sat there, and I'm not kidding you, for three hours listening to to the speakers. Wow. Wow, Um, wow. That's never happened to me before. And I think, again, the speaker resonated with people. You know, Mm. people just got what these speakers were doing. And it's been it's been a lot of work uh, because uh, when you're dealing with with a speaker that you know has got to fulfil expectations, um, it's it's a huge amount of work to make something. I mean, the expectation is it's a big speaker, therefore it's got to generate a big sound. It's got to be mm. dynamic. It's got to impress. It's got to sound good on all styles of music. It's got to sound good at low levels. It's got to sound good at high levels. It has to do everything, right? Because mm. as, as something that size and and that price has got to has got to um, got to be something where people go, yes, I want that. Mm. Um, so we put a huge amount of work in into it and. Mm. We didn't need to go to the original had a 12-inch base unit in a closed cabinet. Of course, mm. now we know how better how to generate the same sort of results using a reflex cabinet with a smaller base unit. So mm. this has got a 10-inch base unit in, in a reflex cabinet. Uh-huh. But actually, the base unit really isn't moving that much. Huh. I mean, you you wind it up. And you take the grills off and you look at the drive unit, it really isn't moving much at all. Um, mm. And the reason for that is the cabinet is actually tuned quite low. The the, the whole system is tuned to 25 hertz. Mm-hmm. So if you go around the back and you stick your ear over the ports, there's not that much coming out of them. You know, there's a lot of volume in that cabinet where the 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 whole system is working at its optimum. It's it's work. It's really really efficient. Mm. Uh, and like I said, you know, the whole system's cruising along. Um, Eighty nine decibels for one watt mm. really doesn't take much to drive it. And it's an easy load. It's a six ohm load with a minimum of three point six ohms, and it doesn't depart much from that six ohms either. It's mm. uh, it's going to be an easy load even for valve amplifiers. But this is a three-way, not a two-way, right? So you've got a mid, you've yeah, got a mid-range a driver th- in there as well. Yeah. So so we've uh, we've got the Kevlar Kevlar base unit, Kevlar mid-range. The mid-range is um, similar to the one used in Linton, but now we've got a, a much bigger rear enclosure, much better damped for it. Uh, mm. So we we've extended its bandwidth um, down to cross over to the ten-inch base unit seamlessly. Uh, and the treble unit again, similar to the Linton, but we, again we've given it a rear chamber to increase its bandwidth, increase its mm. dynamic output, um, and uh, crossovers built on two separate boards. We've got a mid-range treble board and a separate base board because you know the base crossover has got some fairly large components on it, and we wanted to keep the um, the magnetism. Uh, the electromagnetic interference away from the mid-range in trouble mm. uh, and also optimize the layout of the of the PCBs as well to give us um, the the shortest possible signal path. Uh, polypropylene capacitors throughout, uh, air cord coils where we can use them without increasing the DC resistance. Um, 
and very critical damping inside the the enclosure itself. You know, I had to stand over the guys who were building this in the factory and train them uh, right. how to put how to put the the damping material inside. We use mm. a mixture of of uh, anechoic grade foam and long haired fiber. Uh, and they said, "Well, why, why, what, what do I have to put this bit in here for?" I said, "Trust me, you need to do it because it makes the speaker sound right." And you know, we got them into mm. the listening room, played them the speakers, and they went, "Oh, yeah, okay, uh, I see now." I mean, obviously, they didn't understand why we needed to do the things, but they understood when they heard the speaker that mm. things are done the way they're done because it affects the sound quality. I, I guess I want to ask you about the Kevlar on the so the material used for the drivers and how that works in say comparison to the polypropylene that you use in the mission. I guess you use polypropylene in the mission seven seventy because the original was polypropylene. I know you changed up the mix, but did you is there a reason why you couldn't or didn't go with polypropylene for this wharfdale? Is it just a stupid, obvious reason that I'm not thinking of? No, no it's not a stupid, obvious reason. I mean, the, the <clears throat> a part of it is down to the character of sound that you want from a speaker. Um, mm. Polypropylene is exceptionally good in the mid-range. It's mm-hmm. not quite so good in the bass as mm. Kevlar. Kevlar is exceptionally good in the bass and is pretty good in the mid-range. Mm. Um, but you really need a three-way speaker to make the best of Kevlar because you need that smaller diaphragm. Uh, that where, whereas you could do, you know, in, in 770, I can do a two-way because the polypropylene mid-range qualities allow me to stretch it up to the travel unit and beyond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with Kevlar, you can't do An eight-inch Kevlar unit would not be performing well enough in the mid-range for me to be able to make a, a two-way out of it. Uh, so, okay. so you need to go to a smaller diaphragm if you're going to get Kevlar to work in the mid-range. So that's why we use a five-inch. Um, so that's why you have a three-way, so you can have a dedicated a mid-range driver. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. So, I mean, I guess because people will be looking at the pricing of these, the missions and the Wharfdales, going, which one shall I get? So do you have any advice for people, Peter, on like, you know, what kind of sound they can expect from, say, the 770 and then the Dovedale? Well, Dovedale's actually more, a lot more expensive than the than the seven seventy. <clears throat> um, I think it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be about over five thousand dollars a pair. So I've got five thousand pounds. Five thousand pounds in front of me here. Five thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's three and a half on the mission. It's three and a half on the mission, so it's going to be about five and a half, five thousand five hundred dollars. I think. Let me rephrase the question. What can people expect from the Dovedale that they might not get from the, from the more affordable mission? The, uh, the, 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 the actual impact of, of sound, I think, is the best way that I can describe it. Mm. Uh, if, you're, if you're looking for something that is very precise, very revealing in terms of the way that it really lets you into the recording mix um, mm. that is is like a, a, a window into into the performance 
um, mm. the way it was recorded, then then the mission's probably going to do that for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, however, you want something which is really going to make it feel like you've got the a, a rock group in the room, mm. um, I mean, we did a we did a demonstration at Bristol where we put on Foo Fighters mm-hmm. and, and wound the volume up. Uh, the 770, yeah, it was it was quite brash. It was quite aggressive. It got mm. the it got the feeling that you've got a you've got a rock group thrashing their instruments. Fine, you could you you could hear exactly how Foo Fighters have been recorded. You know? mm-hmm. um, Dave Grohl was was really sort of present, but then when we put it on the dovetails, the whole room lit up because you had that mm. extra bass presence. You know, and like I say, the kick drum really came across. It, mm. it was like having a percussion, a percussion set in the room back in the guitars, and and you got as well as well as the raw sound of the guitars. You got you know that that kick drum element, which really drove the rhythm of the Foo Fighters along. So it's horses for courses. It it really depends what what you want your system to do. Is it is it a case that I mean maybe I'm oversimplifying here forgive me for this but is it the case that maybe the Wharfdale is the more physical of the speaker and the Mission is the more cerebral? Oh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I generally go along with that. Yeah. Okay. All right. At least I got something right today. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I guess also I think I mean because I'm looking at photographs of both right now and. I know that the having the word mission across the front of the 770 does put a few people off, you know, whereas there isn't that, uh, let's call it an issue. I'm not even going to, it doesn't put me off. I don't care. But the Wharfdale is a more traditional looking speaker, right? There isn't that sort of more progressive design element to it. Do you think that's going to appeal to the more conservative buyer from an aesthetics point of view? Um, again, I think it it will appeal to the people who say, "Okay, if I've got to have large speakers, I want something that looks like a piece of furniture." Yeah, exactly that. Um, yes, Dove, yes, dovebells yes. do that really well. And could I just pick you up on the mission thing on the front of the seven seventy? I mean, it was there on the on the first one, so we I felt know. we had to replicate it. But you but have also, to, yes. <laughs> yeah, but also, I saw a comment from somebody uh, who said, you know, who on on social media. Who mm. um, who put up a picture of the 770 and said, "I love the look of these. I really want to own a pair." Um, so yeah, it's it's a marmite look, isn't it? If you don't like it, it, it is. Put the gr- it if is. you don't like it, put yes. the grill on. But I think I think people will only buy the 770 if they if they want that look, and it's very distinctive look. I, I I agree. Yes, a marmite look is probably a good way to describe yeah. it. Yeah. Can I come all the way back to the side, the, the sort of width of the front baffle, almost like where we came in? Mm. In that, why if 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 you have an infinitely wide baffle, i.e., the speaker is mounted into the wall, isn't yes. is that therefore the best way to put us? Is that the best way to implement a speaker in a room in the wall? Uh, providing that you've got. The displacement behind the, the volume of air behind it. Yes, I mean that's mm. that. Uh, there's um, a UK reviewer called Paul Messenger, mm-hmm. who yes. who actually had his listening room backing onto his dining room, and mm. he put a 
tannoy speaker in the wall. I think it was a tannoy. Okay, um, right. Might be wrong in that. Might have been something else. But it was it was something <laughs> that uh, you know did full range. Um, <laughs> so he had the whole room behind it. His dining room behind it is the speaker enclosure, uh, mm. and it, then in his listening room he had this full range speaker poking out the wall, and he said it was a, it's the best sound ever. And, and it and it would be the problem, of course, that most people have is that is that they don't have the the volume of air in the wall itself um, mm. to be able to do to do a good job. Yeah, I guess so because I I do see more manufacturers developing in wall speakers in the last five years. Well, that's and, because of that's that's because of home theatre largely, uh, really? and custom okay. and custom install. Yeah, it came yes. in with it came in with home theatre people okay. going. Look, I, I, yeah, I want, I want cinema in my home, but I don't want to see the speakers, and that now seems to have bled over to, I just don't want to see the speakers. So it's not um, for the acoustic properties that an in-wall speaker might have with the infinitely wide front baffle, but because they're more discreet visually. Uh, it certainly helps in terms if you've got an inf- a, a truly infinite baffle for the speaker mm. with the 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 problem that you've then got to design a speaker which doesn't have a very good bass response because there's no volume behind it yeah well not much volume behind it anyway you've only got you've only got the wall cavity yeah but i mean i'm a i'm a big fan of like traditional speakers because as you say and i use this term a lot they're they're, they're hi-fi furniture or audio furniture They're, they're not just nice items to look at and they have to be nice to look at because why would you own something you don't like the look of? It doesn't make any sense at all. But I'm just, I mean, I said this last time we spoke about you know, the 770 and how I think this sort of, I know that you you guys at, uh, or guys and girls at IAG sort of kickstarted this, tre- well, I don't want to call it a trend because that makes it sound cheap, but a move towards making speakers look like they did back in the 70s and 60s, but with modern tech. And I think that has almost reignited a lot of people's love for having like a speaker that really stands sort of tall and proud in the lounge room, right? Yes. And like I say, you know, they they were back in the 60s and 70s, they were treated like pieces of furniture. And I think people still want to do that. Mm. Yeah, I think so too. Well, Peter Como, I think this has been another very illuminating discussion. I'm hoping that we can do a part three at some point later this year. But um, again, thank you very much for your time today. It's my pleasure and uh, always good to speak to you. And thanks to everybody for listening.